Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Those Murder Girls Podcast. We're your hosts, I'm Raina. And I'm Marie. What did you guys think about Jessica Johnson's story last week? We got a lot of feedback and it doesn't seem like you guys think she took her own life. We really hope that the families can get the answers and the closure that they've been waiting for. You guys, before we get started, please head over to social media. Make sure you are liking and following our pages. We have a new exclusive segment to social media called Bloody Birthdays. We are so excited to hear that you guys are just loving it. So wherever you're listening to your podcast right now, please hit that subscribe button. Download our episode today and please take a few minutes to rate and review us. It really helps us move up the charts it's the only way we can move up the charts actually so if you can do that we would appreciate it all right enough about all of that let's jump into today's episode okay guys so today we will be telling you the story or the murder of Kara Evelyn Knott from San Diego California now I remember this story I mean it was two years before I was born but Kara was actually murdered on my birthday December 27th And this story was huge in San Diego, California at the time. I remember my mom telling me all about it. So Kara was born on February 11th, 1966 to her parents, Joyce and Sam Knott. And she had three siblings. She was a junior at San Diego State University and she was there studying nursing. So she was described as she was an environmentalist, an avid track star, Kara was very, very into art. She was an animal lover. She was just a young woman who always had time for everybody. That's how her family described her. Like, Kara would do anything for anybody. So in 1986, Kara was currently enrolled at San Diego State, which is down off of the 8 and 15 freeway interchange. Those are two main highways here in San Diego. The campus is stunning. I mean, no wonder why she chose to go there for her degree. Her parents lived in El Cajon, which is east of the university, about 15 to 20 minutes. So Kara was dating a guy at the time, and his name was Wayne Batista. He lived about 40 minutes north up the 15 freeway from San Diego, and he lived in a town called Escondido. So on December 27th, 1986, Kara was home from college enjoying her Christmas break She had been spending time with her boyfriend at his house, and Wayne had not been feeling well at all. He had the flu. He was super sick in the days after Christmas. So like the loving girlfriend that Kara was, she stayed to take care of him. Shortly after 8 p.m. on the night of December 27th, Kara had called her parents, and she let them know that she would be coming home in just a little bit. So she was getting ready to leave and head home for the evening. She said goodbye to Wayne, and she left his house shortly after. Kara would then stop to get gas at a Chevron gas station at approximately 8.27 p.m. She would then get on the 15 freeway south to make her drive home to her parents in El Cajon. Unfortunately, Kara would never make it home that evening. Several hours had passed and her parents seen no sign of Kara. Kara should have been home at about 8.45 according to her parents' estimates from the time of her phone call to them. Like we said, it would have only had taken her about 40 minutes to get from Escondido to El Cajon. At around 10 p.m. that evening, Kara's parents started to get worried. Her father, Sam, had this horrible gut-wrenching feeling and he knew he just had to go out to look for his daughter. He and his wife had been in the living room of their home when he looked at her and said that he had had a call to his soul and that he knew he needed to go out to find Kara. It was not typical for her to deviate from plans without letting her family know. 
Her parents reached out to law enforcement pleading for assistance in looking for Kara, but the law enforcement stated that searches were not formally initiated until a person had been missing for over 48 hours. So Kara's family, along with her boyfriend Wayne, set out on their own and the search began for her. They drove the exact route she would have taken down the 15 freeway, getting off at every exit, desperately searching for her, thinking maybe she had like a flat tire or some car trouble. Exit after exit, they could find no sign of Kara and their concerns began to increase with every single mile they drove. Kara's mom brought out the phone book and began calling all the local hospitals and local police agencies. There was no sign of Kara not at any hospital or in law enforcement's custody. After an entire evening of searching, they call it a night and they just hope and pray that Kara makes her way home. They all agreed to resume their searches at sunrise if she didn't return home by then. The next morning, as the sun began to rise, Kara's family began their search again. Like the night before, they plan on taking every exit along the route Kara would have taken on her way home. They exit Mercy Road off of the 15, and there it was, underneath the freeway, hidden from plain view, they spot Kara's abandoned 1968 Volkswagen Beetle. When they begin to approach Kara's VW, they notice that the driver's side window is halfway down, and as they get closer, they see that Kara's keys are still in the ignition. They are alarmed to see her purse is on the passenger seat, and it appears that all of her belongings are inside. Kara's family calls the police, and they immediately begin investigating the entire surrounding area. Now, below the off-ramp of Mercy Road was a 70-foot drop from the freeway. As investigators are searching for Kara, an officer peers over the railing, and there he spots Kara's body lying lifeless on the ground below. Kara's father was at the scene during this time, and he caught the look on the officer's face and instantly knew that something was bad. He walked over to the officer and looked him directly in the eye, asking him if he had found his daughter. The officer was so visibly shaken, he could barely look at Kara's dad. After a little time goes by, he turns to her father and says yes, that it was her and that he was so, so sorry. Sam responds to the officer and says, I wish you could have known her. She was an angel. Oh my gosh, Marie, are you okay? It's just so sad. It makes me want to cry. Oh, baby. Okay, guys. Sorry. I got really emotional, but I'm back. So now Kara's family is making it their mission to find out what happened to Kara. Kara's body was carefully recovered from where she lie, and a formal autopsy was conducted. The autopsy was conducted by Dr. Lee Bockhacker, and it was done on December 28th. And when he did it, it showed that Kara was actually strangled to death, and then she was thrown over the bridge 65 to 70 feet down into the dried-up ravine. There were ligature marks that were very predominant around her neck, and there was an obvious, very large, mysterious bruise on her face near her right eye. But I mean, who in the world would want Kara dead? She hardly had any enemies. I mean, she's a 20-year-old college student. She's doing her thing. She seemed to be loved by so many. An initial search of the car leads officers to a receipt, and the receipt was from that Chevron gas station, and it was about 15 minutes away from where Kara's car was found. Officers now know that Kara got gas on her way home from the time-stamped receipt that they had. So they head back to that Chevron gas station to chat with the workers, hoping to secure a lead of some sort. Law enforcement spends some time around the gas station talking to the attendants that worked there, and they said they totally remembered Kara coming in the night before. 
They said she appeared to be totally fine. She pulled up to the pump. She pumped her gas. She paid for it, and she left. Kara was alone when she arrived, and she was alone when she pulled away. So officers walked around the station. No new leads. Pretty much a dead end for them. So they start their investigation by sifting through more trace evidence and fielding all of these calls from the public. I mean, this, you guys, this was a really big case in San Diego. Yeah, way back then, just a 20-year-old average student getting murdered and thrown off a bridge. Like, that's so brutal. People felt so safe during this time. Ugh, it was sad. So, like, I mean, what were people to think? Is there, like, some crazy killer running around? Like, people were scared. Several people had said that they saw a shaggy hitchhiker in the evening of December 27th where Kara's car was found. But that checked out to, yet again, be another dead end. So investigators, they turned their focus to Kara's boyfriend, Wayne. I mean, he was the last person to see her alive, so naturally they had some questions for him. Wayne had been considerably ill leading up to the day of Kara's death, and she had been by his bedside taking care of him. The only word that they had from him was that she left his house the evening of the 27th around 8 p.m. Wayne said that he stayed home the rest of the evening and that his sister could confirm this alibi. So, with an airtight alibi, the detectives head back to the scene of Kara's car to search for further clues. This is where they believe they've gotten their first big break. So near Kara's car, they found two dark skid marks on the ground, and the investigators took photos of the marks, and they measured them. And the measurement of the marks were approximately 53 inches apart from each other. So in their minds, they're now thinking a fairly large vehicle could possibly hold answers as to what happened to Kara. Officers worked diligently and tirelessly at trying to determine whether the marks were from a vehicle skidding to a stop or rapid acceleration. Now, where Kara's car was found, the fact that her window was partially rolled down, it appeared as if she had driven off the highway willingly, and that makes investigators think that there had to have been a reason for that, right? Yeah, like someone let her off. I mean, it would be cold in December. I wouldn't think she'd be driving with her window down on the freeway. No. Well, Kara was also a very careful girl. Like, she would never just get off the highway for anybody. So family and law enforcement are now wondering if she knew the person that harmed her. They began leaning towards this idea because when Kara's car was found, the window was rolled down. So she would have had to roll it down for someone to talk to her, somebody that she had trusted. Now, December 27th, that's a cold night in San Diego, and it was unlikely that Kara would have been driving with her window down. So now since Wayne has an airtight alibi and he was too sick to be out and about driving, the question is... Who could have possibly asked Kara to pull off the freeway? As they continue to search for clues surrounding the death of Kara Knott, the investigators make a move asking local TV stations to release all the details they had surrounding Kara's murder. This was in hopes that someone may come forward with some information on her case. Crime Stoppers was also asked to please broadcast Kara's story. The producers of the show reenacted what they thought had happened leading up to Kara's death. Around this time, Officer Craig Pyre and Rory Devine, veteran officers of the Highway Patrol, are requested by a local TV station to do a segment on driver safety. During this driver safety segment, the officers are talking about what to do if you're ever stranded and alone. They are advising drivers, women specifically, 
to not accept any help from strangers if they're ever stranded, that the only help they should ever accept is for them to call a tow truck or 911 on their behalf. They say to always stay in your cars with the windows up and your doors locked. Calls are flooding into Crime Stoppers. They have almost 300 leads. But what's most concerning is the 30-plus alarming calls from women who had claimed that they had been stopped along the same stretch of freeway by a male officer for no reason at all, that this officer had stopped them and questioned them. The women all went on to similarly describe a specific police officer, saying that he was about 35 years old with dark hair and eyes. The ladies all saying that this unnamed officer would pull them over for no reason. He would question them, and he would sometimes even get into the passenger seat of their cars. All the women went on to say that he was extremely inappropriate, and all of his questions were vulgar in nature. Well, guys, guess who this officer was? Come to find out, it's Mr. Safety himself, Officer Greg Pyre. Oh, and the same officer who we just told you was doing the special segments that were broadcasted all over the San Diego region. Damn, that's pretty ballsy, Officer Pyre. Furthermore, the investigators that interviewed Officer Pyre immediately noticed that he had scratches on his face and forehead during that segment. Likely coincidence, or uh, is Officer Pyre up to something here? So word gets out that Officer Pyre is being questioned in Kara's death, and everyone that knew him just thought that there was no way that he could ever be involved. I mean, Officer Pyre was by all accounts a stand-up police officer. He had a great relationship with his colleagues, and he had a great relationship with the media, always participating in special segments throughout the years. And he was visibly distraught when he heard about Kara's murder. His colleagues and those who knew him were insistent that there was no way, there was no officer more proud of his duties to protect and serve his community than Officer Pyre. Well, let's see what Officer Pyre was up to the day of Kara's murder, because we know that he was on shift that day. Craig Pyre was on his scheduled shift on December 27th, but at the time of Kara's death, which was determined by the coroner to be 9.30 p.m., Officer Pyre was supposedly miles away writing a traffic ticket. So that would give him an alibi, I mean, I suppose. Plus, again, Craig's work buddies thought that there was no way in hell that he could ever be responsible for killing Kara. He took his job extremely serious. He was out there to catch criminals. He wasn't one himself. Well, a week goes by after Kara's murder, and calls just keep flooding in from women, and they're reporting that Officer Pyre himself Officer Pyre, he was the one that had allegedly made these improper stops, pulling over these women, acting inappropriately with them, all in the same area where Kara's car was found. So at this point, Officer Pyre is brought down to the station for further detailed questioning. And immediately, the investigators, they continue to notice that there were multiple suspicious scratches and marks on his face and his forehead. He also had some sort of an injury to one of his arms. I mean, it was obviously a sign that he was in some sort of an altercation or a struggle, to which he never reported to his department supervisors. When they had asked him what had happened, he stated that he had fallen on police station grounds. He said he fell against a fence at the police barracks on the evening of December 27th, near like where his car was parked. Well, guys, let us tell you that the fence that Officer Pyre is referring to was way too high, and it was so far away from where his car would have even been parked. Like, he would have had to literally run and jump on the fence to pretty much sustain any injury. Okay, Officer Pyre, you fucking Superman or what? Seriously. 
So investigators and Pyre's colleagues, they take a closer look at Pyre's logbook for the night that Kara was murdered. Because remember, he was supposedly writing a ticket elsewhere. Well, in the logbook, at the time that he said he was giving a ticket, they noticed what had ever been written in the log at 930 was erased and marked over. So was Officer Pyre giving himself an alibi at the same time? Officer Pyre was hellbent that he had nothing to do with Kara's murder. The disgraced Pyre turns in his uniform that he was wearing that night, and he turned it over to the investigators, who then passed it along to an examiner named John Sims. So on his uniform, there was this identifying highway patrol patch, and it was on the sleeve, and it was blue and gold in color. So as John Sims examined the uniform, and particularly the gold patch, Sims said that there was a visual appearance of gold fibers, and they were so memorable in his mind because he remembered how unique they were at the time. Now, these fibers were so unique and memorable to Dr. Sims because he was thinking back to where he had seen them before, and then it hits him. He remembered that they were the same fibers that he had seen on Kara's clothing. So examiners take another look at Kara's clothing and boom, they find a single gold fiber on Kara's sweater and it was identical to the gold fiber from fucking Craig Pyre's officer patch. They continue to test additional pieces of evidence and they find some gold fibers on Officer Pyre's boots and his weapon. It is determined that they are a direct match to Kara's sweatpants. In addition to these direct links to Pyres and Kara, police find a small piece of yellow rope underneath the spare tire of Pyres' police car. This rope and the ligature marks found on Kara's neck were a direct match. Blood was found on Kara's shoes, and because it was way back in the 80s, DNA obviously wasn't nearly as advanced as it is today, so scientists had to rely on testing blood types in these types of situations. Type AB blood, which is the rarest blood of all, just happens to be Officer Pyre's blood type. The rarest blood type in the entire country at the time is linked back to this specific officer. All of the evidence along with the tire marks that were matched to his car was just overwhelmingly piling up against Pyre's. Less than one month after Kara's murder, veteran officer Craig Pyre was arrested and charged with first degree murder. A jury convicted Pyre, and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. But the first trial for Officer Pyre ended in a hung jury. Upon retrial, Officer Pyre was convicted of first-degree murder, and this was the first ever murder conviction against an on-duty CHP officer. In 1988, Pyre was sentenced to 25 years to life. As tragic as this story is, the events of Kara Knott were far from over. The location where Kara was found is now home to a memorial garden of oak trees to honor her and other victims of violent crimes. Sam Knott, he became a nonstop advocate for crime victims following his daughter's murder. He campaigned day in and day out for local and state law enforcement agencies to install technology that would let them monitor the whereabouts of the officers at all times. He also pressed law enforcement to ease up the standard of the 48-hour waiting period before issuing a missing persons bulletin to officers in the field. So the loss of Kara, it plagued her father, Sam, for years. One afternoon, while Sam was spending time at the site where Kara's body was found, he passed away from a heart attack. Joyce Knott, Kara's mom, wrote this in a public statement. 
I just don't want our family to appear that we're against the police. We have the utmost respect for the department and majority of the officers. It just seems that after all these years, there should be a better way to identify the bad ones. Thank goodness times have changed and at least some of the women who are harassed or taken advantage of come forward and report these incidents. When there is a pattern of behavior of controlling women through sexual advances, there is a chance that those actions may escalate and another person's life may be in danger. I want to encourage any woman who finds herself in such situations to speak up and report it. By doing this, she may save the life of another innocent young woman. It would have saved Kara's. Now, due to the COVID-19 situation, we actually have an update for you guys on Officer Pyre. Officer Pyre apparently falls under the category of a high-risk medical classification. That means that he's been deemed high-risk for COVID-19 complications. Now, because he's not serving a sentence of life without parole, he's been assessed as low risk for violence and is not a high-risk sex offender. So there is a possibility that he could be released due to the COVID-19. Now, the prison released this statement. Quote, Ultimately, the prison should have to explain to the people and the state of California and to the Knott family why it is absolutely necessary, not just a caution, but absolutely necessary to release someone who committed an act like this into the public. End quote. The Department of Corrections sent News 8 the following statement on the case. Quote, at this time, there are no plans to expedite the release of Officer Craig Pyre. We hope that Officer Pyre never sees the light of day after what he did to young Kara. A memorial garden in Kara's name is located in the Rancho Penasquitos area of San Diego. This is a place her family often spends time keeping her memory alive. We want to thank you guys so much for joining us today for another episode of Those Murder Girls podcast. As always, our source material is listed on our website in the notes, and we'll see you all back here next week for some more true crime. Bye, Bye guys. guys.